Eina mana ena reo ena iwi. Now my harimai ko Simon Wilson aho. Welcome to But What Can We Do? And a thank you, a big thank you to our sponsors, the Royal Society, to Aparangi. We're all good scientists and science lovers here. And it's social sciences as well as the physical sciences. Here's a bit of news. The top story on the Herald website yesterday wasn't the Wellington fire or the shooting in Sandringham, nor even pre-budget stuff. It was the weather. And it wasn't even raining. It's still a joke, isn't it? The old joke was nothing happens in this country, so the news is the weather. But it's a different kind of joke now, because we know different. But what can we do, the title of this session, what can we do, what can we do, what can we do? One thing we can do is make submissions. 41,000 people made submissions to the Auckland Council this year <laughs> about their budget, and they listened. And that points to something else. The ecosystem of political change. Submissions, protests, media, a lot of hard work by officials, and a lot more by politicians, the councillors who work for change. And the same thing happened with yesterday's other mayoral announcement, the council's 19-point plan for flood resilience. It includes daylighting streams and should make it easier to plan denser housing with parks and repurpose the public space we call roads, all of those things. Again, it's an ecosystem. It was created, that, this new plan, by valuable, highly skilled people serving the public interest who are also known to others as bureaucratic wastrels. Again, a lot of agitation on the outside, a lot of excellent work by urban designers and planners inside and outside the council, a lot of pushing by councillors. This ecosystem works, but it doesn't work well enough. We heard today that the 1.5 degree ceiling on global warming will probably be exceeded in just the next two or three years. We're in the crunch decade, and emissions are still rising. It's carbon and methane. There are nine tipping points, as I'm sure many of you know, including melting, the melting of boreal permafrost, collapse of the Greenland and West Antarctica ice sheets, dieback in the Amazon rainforests. The time to ensure we don't get to any of them is right now. But most plans for significant emissions reduction are long-term. It's true here, and it's true in the rest of the world. And Auckland has a classic example. We will try to transform the transport in this city, moving away from private motor vehicles as the preferred first choice by a painfully slow rollout of bike lanes and by pouring massive amounts of concrete into tunnels for light rail and a new harbour crossing. Concrete is a major carbon emitter. It will mean short-term setbacks and more emissions for long-term gain. Road cones now for a better city later. This does work if you look at Key Street and Queen Street, but the climate crisis says we can't think like that. We need the gains now. Transport is 40% of our emissions in Auckland, 20% nationally. Farming is 50%, and the sector believes it already leads the world in efficiency. The ravages of Cyclone Gabrielle and the anniversary weekend rainstorm destroyed lives, homes, farms, dreams, not to mention the drains, not to mention 
the entire basis on which we have been planning our climate responses. And while most New Zealanders consistently say they understand there is a climate crisis, it doesn't follow that there's wide public popular agreement on what to do about it. None of this is simple. We know there's a small number of there's a small number of uber-wealthy people in the world who are personally responsible for a big chunk of the emissions. Oxfam calculates that the emissions from a billionaire compared to the average person, a million times more. Mm. They've also, those people also have the wealth to make a material difference. So why should we change if they won't? We also know most of the crises, crisis has been caused by burning fossil fuels for coal, oil and gas, and that entire industry is controlled by a small number of countries, a small number of corporates in the industry, and a small number of very powerful financial institutions that prop them up. We also know that all of them are getting on board with the climate action message, but only to the extent that they can see how to profit from it. Toyota is a world leader in EVs, but it's also a world leader in fossil fuel SUVs. If it's their fault, why should we change? My simple answer is that we're their customers. They won't change until we force them to, which includes forcing our governments to force them to. I know it's a very simple answer, but how should we do this? What's the relationship between writing submissions marching in the streets, writing articles in the newspaper, getting elected to council and parliament, gluing your hands to the road, blockading a mine, sabotaging a pipeline, going to a session in the Writers' Festival to hear people talk about all this. And what about the practicalities of our own lives? Can we change how we live and how we build communities? Jade Kake is, leader in the is a leader in the development of Papakainga, She's an architectural designer and a writer involved in recreating village life in Northland. Her book, twice reprinted since 2019, is called Rebuilding the Kainga. Jade has helped develop a model of how to live that's highly successful and radically different from what most of us know. She'll be speaking shortly. Can we change how we behave? You all know Sean Hendy from the COVID days, but there's more to the man than that. In 2018, he stopped flying for a year. It's quite a big change for a public figure in demand, especially in this country. His book is called Hashtag No Fly, and he's going to tell us what he learned, the practicalities and the pleasures. Can we change how we do politics? Can we change the way we measure and value our progress? Carissa Shodan is an interdisciplinary scholar at the University of Auckland, working across feminist theory, gender issues, and law and society. Carissa is one of the authors of Fierce Hope, a study of youth activism in Aotearoa. Young people, eh? Our hope for the future? I imagine it can be enraging to hear that. We created the problem, but it's okay. We know you can fix it. Can we change what politics and economics are? Max Harris has a book with a modest little title. It's The New Zealand Project. It's also been reprinted twice, and, we, and in it, he reimagines pretty much everything. He's a lawyer, a scholar, an activist, and last year, 
threw himself into the deep end of politics as campaign manager for the mayoral campaign of Fa'ananu Ifeso Collins. We're going to have a few minutes from each of them, and then we're going to have a conversation, and I hope we will have time for your questions at the end. Jade. Okay. Toku whakaaro me atu o ki te tukubihi, ki a koutou ngā mihi tō haramaiki konei, ki tā ta whakarongo ki tēnei kōrero, ngā mihi ki a koe Simon e tō haramai, e tō pōhere ki tā haramai, ki tā whakawhiti kōrero, hei taumata kōrero. Ko te tūmana, ko kā tai o te whakatakoto e tahi whakaaro pai, e tahi whakaaro manawareka. Ko Jay Kakitu, ku ingoa, i ki kea Simon, heoi he kaihoa hoa wharea hau, ko au te kaiārahi o tētahi pākihi hoa hoa ngā Māori, ko matakohe hoa hoa ngā me tōpū pāti ingoa o tērā pākihi. Ka mahi mātou ki te taha o ngā whānau, ngā marae, ngā hapu, ngā iwi Māori, ki te whakahaere i ngā wawata o era iwi hapu te mea te mea i te taiao hanga e tahi marae, e tahi papurukainga koira te mahi tino tata ki o mātou ngākau. Tētahi atu mea he pōaka mātua, pōako, aue, he pōaka mātua a hau ki te wānanga aronui o tāmei ki makaurau, i roto i te kura o huri te ao, i roto i te tari o hoa hoanga. He mahi hau ki a hau, he oi ko taku tino whainga ki reira, ki te whakatū i tētahi akoranga hoa hoanga hau i te reo Māori, Tētahi atu mea tēnō tata ki tōku ngākau, ki te tipu i ngā reanga e whaiake nei, ki te whakatipu i ngā reanga e whaiake me nei. Te mea tua toru, he kai tuhi hiuki a hau. Koina taku mahi runa runa pea, ka tuhi au i te nui ngā o ngā wikine. Ka puta ngā pukapuka e rua i tuhi ai au a te tau nei, Heoi i tuhi au i tētahi atu, pukupuka, i kōro kea Simon e Pāniki tērā, ko rebuilding the kainga te ingoa, i puta tērā, pukupuka ki te ao i ngā tau e whā kua hipa. Tērā pia, kua pau te wā, heoi me hurio ki te reo Pākehā Motu wā tēnō pōtō. I've probably used all of my time, but I'll just say a very few small things in um, English, which was really, I was just saying for those who are not te reo speakers, that um, I've got an architecture firm based in Whangarei, and we mostly work with Māori communities. Uh, a lot of our work is around Papakainga Marae, which is very relevant to the corridor that we're going to have tonight. I also work at AUT as a senior lecturer, um, and I'm looking to develop an architecture program in Sereo Māori, feeling very well supported there. And the third thing that I do is that I like to write on the side. I would say that's, a, I don't know, a professional hobby maybe, um, probably like many of you in the audience, and so it's something I do a lot on the weekends. I've got two books coming out this year, but the one that's kind of most relevant to this discussion came out four years ago, um, and hilariously, I forgot, I don't know why I didn't figure this out, but last night I went to the book awards and that I went to go buy one of the books and I said to my friend, oh look, my book's there, I'm still relevant. And I was like, oh my God, it's because we're speaking about it today. Um, of course <laughs> it was there for sale, so that was very silly. So um, anyway, kia ora koutou. Kia ora. Kia ora.
Jade, Jade, just before we move on, I wonder if you could just give us a short description of Papakainga. Yeah, I think that's helpful because I don't think that that's um, always well understood and I don't think there's a um, wide consensus on the term, but generally I would understand Papa Kainga as deriving from maybe two words, but well, Papa Tuanuku, which is an, an, the ingoa for the whenua, for the earth mother, which I think everyone knows, and Kainga, which is the ancestral village or home. And I've heard other breakdowns of, the, of Kainga in particular and how it can be broken into other parts, but I won't go there. Um, and so I think probably it's helpful to uh, understand that pre-colonization, early settlement, Kainga, there was three sort of dominant forms of settlement, Kainga, Pa, and then, um, you know, fishing villages and things associated with Mahinga Kaia, which were more temporary. And so Kainga was kind of the main village form. And Papa Kainga, I think in its contemporary sense, represents the um, rebuilding or strengthening of existing kainga generally on ancestral land where there's some kind of whakapapa link, whether it's in Māori title or not, and generally amongst um, people who share a whakapapa link between each other. And what's the scale at which you're operating? You mean papa kainga generally? Yes. Oh, gosh, it can range from a few houses for an extended kind of whānau through to you know, hundreds of homes. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a real scale. Uh, yeah, uh, there's no scale cap on, on what a papakainga could and, and should be. Um, and I think with some of the post-settlement iwi entities, they've got some opportunities to do quite vast developments that they're able to self-determine as papakainga if that's kind of their interest. And it's not just that it's a subdivision on traditional land, is it? There's a good deal more to it than that. Yeah, I mean, it can be that, but I think in its broader sense, it also means kind of facilitating that reconnection to the land and to one another, or strengthening it where it still exists. And so that might be things like, um, you know, living in accordance with the maramataka, understanding when to plant things, having a relationship with your awa, with your moana, having that active kaitiaki role. It could also be opportunities for, you know, intergenerational knowledge transfer, strengthening our reo Māori, growing our skills in our whānau around a, a wide range of things. It could also be strengthening our taumata and the essential functions of our marae because many papakainga are closely linked with the marae. So it's cultural links and there are economic links because there's an economic Oh yes, yes, so you're teasing it out. I must oh, mention yeah. the economic <laughs> aspects. Um, and so probably, um, I, I did find when I wrote the book, people were sometimes disappointed that it wasn't more design focused based on some feedback. <laughs> but um, it's essentially like an economic think piece. And really what I was trying to you know, lay out was you know, if we considered our kainga is the primary economic unit in a pre-colonization sense, then what would it mean if we rebuilt those kainga um, for our modern political and economic systems? And so some of the thoughts I had were that actually the kainga was quite a self contained unit in a way. So there was a lot of things that were provided internally and there was a kind of cohesive internal system and they're often cited to be able to, lo to located next to um, natural resources and also they would control those natural resources and the access to the ones that that, that hapu or whanau might have controlled had a relationship with um, those, those resources that others might have controlled and it was a sort of a complex tapestry of, of whakapapa relationships that determined access and usage of those resources. 
And so I think, again, we're living in a very different time, but I do think there's some real potential, especially with the treaty settlement landscape, and not the treaty settlement is a silver bullet, it's certainly not, but it also includes some statutory provisions, some return of land, some return of, of money, some opportunity to rebuild the tribal economic base. And so I think that's why I think that our post-settlement entities in particular have the ability to be, be a big part of, of creating that kind of change, and, and, and we're already seeing it, so it's not a purely theoretical idea. Right. We'll come back to this. Okay. I wonder if we could jump to you, Sean. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Simon. It's uh, great to be here tonight. Um, of course, some of you be wondering why the COVID guy has turned up to lecture you on, on climate change. Um, I... I Actually, my, my sort of climate change moment um, happened in 2018. Simon mentioned that I, I decided not to fly. Um, one of the perks of being an academic, of course, is, is flying all over the world, uh, collaborating with lots of interesting uh, colleagues in interesting places. Um, so I, but I, you know, I'd come to think about my responsibilities and, and, and my role as a scientist and sort of perpetuating the system under which we, we, we live. Um, and you know, 2018 was the, was, this, was, was the year that really I decided that, you know, what I was going to work on in my career from that point on was going to be climate change. Of course, COVID <laughs> came, uh, came and interrupted that. In fact, I, I had, um, in 2018, I um, started a company with, with two other um, people, Natalie Wodeka and Mike Taitoko. Uh, this company's called Toha. Um, and, and that company's about trying to get um, uh, funding to, to frontline environmental activities, including um, combating climate change. And I was supposed to go um, half-time at that company, so, so leave the university half-time and, and, and work on the company on April 1st, 2020. So it was a little bit of an interruption uh, there, but actually now, now that's what I'm doing. And, and I guess what I'd like to share tonight, at least to, to start with, is perhaps why I got to that point in 2018. And I, and I do often look back on this because I learned about climate change when I was 11 um, in, in you know, 1982, <laughs> right? So I've been aware of this problem. Um, you know, it was, I, was, I was 11, I was looking for a science fair project, and, and my dad gave me a Scientific American, and then it was, there was this to an 11-year-old, this delightful article about how the Antarctic ice sheets were going to melt and we're all going to be underwater. And I thought that was fascinating at the time. Um, and so I've known, I've known about this problem, but, but for most of my life, I just assumed other people would sort it out. You know, I went on, I became a scientist. I didn't become a climate scientist. I thought this is just, well, we, you know, they, they worked it out in the 80s, right? I read this article about it. Surely the, the solutions will now just unfold. And... You know, I, I, I went on for a while. I, you know, I discovered climate change deniers. I spent spent some time arguing with them online, um, but that, that was about my contribution to to, um, uh, to the battle against climate change. And and then it was really, you know, coming into uh, end of 2016 with with Donald Trump being elected in the U.S. and and really, you know, a, a lot of us would have, you know, seen this as a bit of a watershed moment when perhaps this. The, the sense that we might be slowly getting towards dealing with climate, that we might have the capacity as societies to deal with climate, it's just, at least for me at that moment, just sort of vanished. And I realized, actually, no one else, we haven't got this as, 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 a, as a global society. And actually, I've, I'm as guilty as anyone because I've been sitting on the sidelines and not taking action myself. So that, that no-fly year starting a company was really kind of my acceptance that there was a problem, that I was part of that problem, and, and I needed to spend, put some time and effort into trying to solve that problem. Um, 
I, you know, it was, it was a, a lot of people have, have, have mentioned to me that I kind of had a, a, a forerun of our COVID, um, <laughs> a couple of years of COVID with the border shut, and it, and it was actually um, kind of similar. You know, I learned how to use um, video conferencing technologies. Um, I became proficient at Zoom. You know, when everybody else was struggling to get to get Zoom going, I was a, I was a bit of an old pro. You mean Zoom existed before COVID? <laughs> it did. <laughs> it was just me on Zoom in 2018. <laughs> it was a bit dull on my own, but, um, but I was there. Um, and and you know, so 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 people have a sense of what this world might be where we're more constrained. Um, uh, by you know that lack of access to fossil fuels, you know you'll have you'll have a sense of what my year was like. I think perhaps w what's happened since there's been moments of hope and then despair. I mean, I think I I looked at the way we responded to COVID with with a great deal of hope. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was quite an amazing moment for for the country to to really rally around and and unify on 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 solving what was a, a really big problem. It was also massive a massive challenge for those involved in the response. I looked at what was happening in government. It was huge, you know, the, the stress that they were under, the number of decisions they were having to make to move that rapidly, to take the country with them was, was a massive challenge. And, and, and actually, I think a lot, of, a lot of the people that we might be looking to leadership from coming out of COVID are, are, are a bit exhausted now. You know, so the challenge that we had, that, um, that, that, that was exhausting. And then, of course, we haven't, you know, um, uh, our public transport infrastructure has suffered, and we, we, we haven't rebuilt. We've done some good things, um, reducing fears on public transport, but actually, you know, if, 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 if you've caught a bus here tonight, well, well done. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, our buses, our trains, they're not working as well as, as they did when I had my year um, off in 2018. So we do have some challenges. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm an optimist, and that's why I'm working in this space now. Um, but it will take um, a, a lot of effort from a lot of people to, to make Can you just tell us briefly how you organised your life, not just Zoom, but you would have had to add day, travel days and um, find ways to use those productively, and that might have had an upside too. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was, it was, there were some ple really pleasant days. I mean, with the, the, the train down, from, um, down to Wellington, so a lot of the, the trips that, I would, that I'd be making were, were, were down to Wellington, and then sometimes I'd go into the South Island. Um, and yeah, the train, train was great, you know? You could, um, especially in the winter, when it was, was there weren't tourists, it was empty, you could sort of set up with your laptop and work away, and it has an amazing view. Um, you just had to realize there'd be, no, there'd be no cell phone coverage, and that could be a good thing if, if, um, if you'd planned ahead and had all the data you needed, and you didn't want to be bothered, um, or it can be a little bit alarming <laughs> if you didn't realize that you were <laughs> going to be out of cell phone coverage for most of the time. Um, then the buses were, were kind of, next tier, um, and, uh, you know, no PowerPoint on a bus, so I'd be trying to write a lecture on my laptop, I'd, you know, you'd, you'd pull into Timaru, I'd, I'd sort of leap out trying to find somewhere to plug my laptop in, so <laughs> I could make the, the, the leg down to Dunedin, um, and then the overnight bus, um, and I, I did take that a couple of times to make these, these um, meetings uh, that had been called at a short notice, um, uh, I, I was involved in the MBOVIS eradication program at, at the time, and so there were a few of those meetings that were quite short notice where I just had to go, okay, well, I can't, I'm going to have to teach a class, get on the overnight bus. And, um, and that, that wasn't quite so pleasant. You don't arrive 
um, bushy-tailed, um, mm -hmm. and then sometimes they cancel those meetings. <laughs> so that actually did happen to me. I took the overnight bus, overnight bus down, and the meeting was cancelled. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> but in, but so it was, it was, it, it's doable, but it is, it is a challenge, mm -hmm. and it, it does require a lot of planning. And it requires a lot of accommodation from those around you, right? And, and, and um, I think that's, that was my big takeout, is if, if we do make a decision as a society to work differently, and we all kind of buy into that, and, and, and we start to accommodate people who are making these choices, then it can work. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you can't change your life and keep it the same. You've got to change it and... Yeah, and and I think the other thing I'd add was, was it, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's not possible for everyone. Um, uh, it's most possible for people who are perhaps more senior, right? So these are people that are probably enjoying the perks of the Cory Lounge and the, the business class travel, right? It's, you've actually got more control over your life, um, and so you can, you can make that change. People who, who don't have the autonomy in their day-to-day -day job, they, you know, they have to be where they're told to be. It's a lot harder for those folk. So, um, so it definitely comes down to people who, who have the ability to do it, making that change and leading the way. You mentioned hope and despair before, and that's the balanced thing, isn't it? Carissa, can we come to you now? Can you yeah, tell us what you've done? Uh, kia ora, thank you. Um, I think I was invited onto this panel because of the book Fierce Hope, which was generously supported by the Royal Society. And we, I was part of a research team where we interviewed um, participant activists in six groups across Aotearoa. And they were working on we, we did interview Generation Zero. We worked with Generation Zero, obviously working on climate change, but also rainbow rights organizations like Inside Out. We worked with Just Speak, Action Station, Thursdays in Black. It's Thursday, I'm in Black. I'm working for a world without sexual violence, tackling rape culture. And I mentioned all these groups because one of the things that really struck us as we were talking with young activists is regardless of what got them into activism or what they were currently working on, to a person, to a group, they were talking about climate change. Climate change is front of mind for all of them, but also connecting it to whatever else they were also working on. So for all of these younger activists, people you know, 18 to 30s, early 30s, which still seems very, very young, um, they, they are thinking about the ways that all of these different crises or problems that we are currently facing are interconnected and climate change is interconnected with all of them. So whenever I'm thinking about climate change and you asked us to think about you know, what are the sort of critical perspectives or critical questions we really need to address, one of the first things that springs to mind for me reflecting on what activists have told us is that you can't have climate change activism exist in a bubble. It has to be working with and alongside working on um, indigenous activism. You have to be working with um, uh, tackling gender violence. And so when you're thinking then about solutions, that means thinking about how do we build not just sustainable cities, but sustainable cities that are also safe cities for gender minorities, for women, for other people. How do we build um, or how do we think about not just bike lanes, but also building communities where people are close-knit and together and are close to places of care. When we're thinking about strategies, and you wrote a great um, article over the weekend in the Herald, talking a lot about different kinds of strategies that we might take, and the activists themselves are thinking about the ways that we have to 
we can't expect the same things from all different activists, and we can all bring something else, something different to a campaign. And so what might be the, the maximum that anybody can do for their activism is gonna look really different depending on if they have you know, heavy care responsibilities or different physical abilities. And so how do we think intersectionally, how do we bring these things together so that we can actually think more creatively and more sustainably about the kind of future that we want to build based on a different kind of value system. You know, all of these things are connected because we have a politics based on extraction and exploitation that leads to precarity. So how do we build different kinds of values by being open to each other and thinking creatively um, for more, better, sustainable solutions that also sustain the kind of hope that you need to, to give people. Because if you just tell people uh, an angry story or a sad story or a desperate story or the story of despair, they're not going to want to keep working. They're going to give up. And we often think of hope as being a bit naive or pie in the sky or, or not really serious. But in fact, to be really hopeful, to, to, to engage in activism, you have to be hopeful. But you have to be hopeful in that critical sense of knowing what's actually wrong, but having a sense if we come together, that's the way we can generate and sustain ourselves and build something, or at least combat some of the problems that we're facing. Thank you. I want to come back to um, all those points. Um, can I just ask at this stage, is the sound OK for people? It is. It's just on the stage, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> we can't hear each other easily. <laughs> Okay, we'll manage. Um, so, Max. Tina Tato Katoa, Namahinui Kiakwe Simon, Namahinui Kiakoto, He Pakia Ho, He Max Harris Tokuno, I call Max Harris Tokuno, Kanoho O, Ka Korero O e Tereo Pakia, Ka Timata O Kitako Tereo Maori. Yeah, um, Simon asked us just to mention two or three kind of key issues that we uh, thought might be relevant to the discussion. So um, I just thought I'd touch on a couple of things that I think build on what others have said. Um, the first point um, just came out of thinking about the recent floods and Cyclone Gabriel, and I guess it's about um, how resources matter when we tackle climate change. And I guess different people in the audience will have had different experiences with the floods and the cyclone. Um, but when I think of the people who were affected and how I was affected, um, it was very clear to me that um, people without resources, and where we think of resources as financial resources, access to networks, information, um, fared very differently to people with resources. So people with fewer resources, um, or no, people with more resources were more likely to know early about the cyclone and the floods, in my experience. People were more likely to have alternative accommodation. People were more likely to have special equipment to clean up where they were affected. They were more likely to recover quickly as opposed to be um, damaged for longer. And um, we're still kind of recovering from all of that, and I'm sure evidence will come out, but I think it illustrates a broader point, which is resources matter in climate change. And that takes me, I think, to the second point I wanted to make, which is resources aren't distributed randomly in Aotearoa. And there are patterns in who has resources and who doesn't have resources. We know, because of colonization, that Māori tend to have fewer resources on average than non-Māori. We know that lower-income people may have less access to, to networks or less access to income. Uh, we know that disabled people, people with insecure immigration status, um, others are less likely to have those resources. And um, that leads me to thinking a 
about how long we've had those patterns in this country, and that makes me think it's not just a problem of um, who's in charge or priorities or policies, but a systemic problem. And I guess that's the second point I wanted to make, the need for systemic change, um, as opposed to just changing the people or policy or priorities. Um, and on that, and in relation to climate change, I do think we have a system that is working in the opposite direction from the kinds of solutions we need to tackle climate change, like a system that wants to put a cap on investment and borrowing at the same time as we need to invest and borrow, in my view, to tackle climate change. Um, a system that puts pressure towards loosening rules uh, in, in business and regulation, when I think we need really robust regulation to deal with climate change. And just to add a personal dimension, I, I guess I think that I've um, become, I suppose, a bit uh, bolder in what I think is needed over time. Um, and I think I was involved with several of the groups that Chris's great book looked at, so Just Speak and Generation Zero, um, 10, 12 years ago. And um, I think what I've discovered over time is we were kind of fighting in these groups to take some arguments permanently off the table um, on criminal justice, on climate change, and we felt we had some successes, but what I guess I've seen growing older is those arguments coming back and um, uh, interests remobilizing when you thought you'd won a debate. And that makes me think, again, that the problem is structural and systemic. Um, and so I guess the third final question is, how do we deliver on that systemic change, which is the, the hard one? Um, but if the problem is with our political economic order, I think there are real solutions that can give us hope. Um, and I think just to throw out kind of two um, high-level ideas that I've found really helpful, because sometimes systemic change can sound kind of um, disempowering or, or scary in its scale, um, but I think uh, there are real ways we can gradually shift towards a different kind of system. Um, the report of Matike Mai Aotearoa about a, a tetiriti-based society, a values-based society, is a really inspiring document, I think, which um, can help us find a path that's appropriate to this country. And a second idea that I've found really helpful in the last few years is a new idea around universal basic services, which has been posed um, alongside the idea of a universal basic income. But the idea of that is that there are some things that are too important to be left to the market and that through particular political work, we can take some things out of the market. Maybe prescription fees being scrapped today in the budget, one example of, of taking market forces out of certain really important parts of our healthcare, but it might also extend to public transport or dental care. And the idea is you make the market slightly less central in our lives and change the values that are central to our lives. I think we have to fight this on lots of fronts, so at local government level, central government level, through um, uh, policy and academia, through um, investment and philanthropy, through activism and protest, through law and litigation. Um, but I think there are yeah, real concrete ways that we can sustain our hope and that we can work towards that systemic change that I think we need. Um, so those are just some thoughts to get us started. Thank you, Max. My first question arises out of that, and is for all of you, really. Um, there are two schools of thought in the climate movement, well, lots of schools, really, I guess, but the two I'm thinking of are, you just articulated one of them, that 
climate action requires systemic change in the economy and politics and society. And therefore, I guess what you're really saying is inherently on the left. It's a left issue. It needs a left understanding of how to reform society. I think that's what you're saying. The other school of thought says, actually, we need those billionaires and those uh, the wealthy and powerful in society now and those corporations, we need them to understand that it doesn't have to be the end of the world for them. They can get on the train too, um, which is, those two things are, could be in real contradiction or they could be a synthesis. And I wonder what you, you all think about that. Are they in contradiction? Can they be synthesised? I'd like to say something. Yes, please. Let's not pander to billionaires. I think probably the best <laughs> response is, um, I don't know if everyone remembers, I think it was Kylie Jenner perhaps, but maybe a few other celebrities, and someone had this system where they were tracking all of the private jet journeys, and some of them were maybe 10 minutes, and they, they couldn't figure out, these rich people couldn't figure out who was doing it or, or how to stop them, so they just kept posting it on social media and uploading it to the internet. And I think, great, let's shame billionaires for that kind of behavior. <laughs> so you could extrapolate that, couldn't Sorry, you? Sorry, I'm sure there's a more considerable no, response, I, but I wanted but, to throw that out there. But actually, um, behaviour that is reprehensible in terms of uh, what it does to the climate mm. isn't just people's private jets, it goes further. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I do think we need to be careful about um, not shaming individuals who are just trying to operate within a system for some of these behaviours, especially if we're not providing good alternatives and especially if we're not regulating when we could be. So for instance, you know, I mean, I've, this is a very small one. I carry a keep cup everywhere, I buy coffee every day and I feel a little virtuous about it, but actually it would be so easy just to get rid of PLA-lined cups altogether and not have that as part of the system. I, I, I think another one is, um if you've got a bunch of kids who need to go to different places and the only car you can afford is a people mover that burns fossil fuels, well, what are you going to do? You know, that, yeah, absolutely, that, because our transit systems are not set up for that. Exactly, yeah. It's not your fault they're not set up. <laughs> Others? I mean, they're not necessarily in, in opposition, and I do I, very much have the same school of thought, that transparency and, and accounting is, is really important. I, I, in, in 2018, I tried to... You know, I was I was cutting my emissions, and I kept a record of what I'd done. And I was, you know, I was quite surprised, right, at, at the at the size of my emissions from from my travel. And I tried to get information about other academics at the University of Auckland. I didn't want names. I wasn't going to shame particular people. I just wanted, like, what does the distribution look like? Um, you know, are there a few people like me who are going crazy, or is it, you know, is it all sort of? And and I ended up having to. OIA, my own university, <laughs> um, to get that information out. You know, it, it, it's it's actually just often really hard to get at the get at the get insights into what's going on and to how carbon is being used. You know, is it is it a few people that are having a, a major impact? And so transparency is a, a key part of that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about about shaming. Hopefully, people look at their own footprint and make those own, uh, their own decisions. Um, but we should be making decisions relative to the information, you know, to the kind of information that, that, that we would need to, um, to limit our carbon footprints. So, so I think, 
you know, billionaires <laughs> looking at their looking at their at their wealth and, and thinking about how they can use that and the impact that that has on on the climate. I think is is, is important. We probably need few fewer billionaires and more more public transport systems. Um, but it'd be good to know, you know, wh where is all that money being spent? You know, how is it being spent, and and what impact does that have on the climate? And that's still a real challenge. It's also about bringing people in where they are. So we absolutely need structural change. Structural change will not happen overnight. So how do you have a range of interventions and get people on board to doing something about climate change wherever they're at now so that you can slowly start to move the system? So rather than it's either this or it's that, I think it has to be everything. We have to throw everything at it that we can. So less shaming and more sort of teaching and drawing attention to and just trying to say these are things that you could do and it might not be the end of their world but their world is going to have to change right they can't just keep doing the same thing so how do you get people on board to do that yeah yeah just to jump in um, i think we should be upfront about aspects of the roots of the problem because if we don't confront those we will be misdiagnosing the problem and our solutions will just patch up the society that we're in so um, I think it's 100 companies in the world contribute to 71% of the global emissions. Mm. We should be upfront about that and the need to, to tackle those companies, tackle um, billionaires. At the same time, I think talking in terms of it being a systems problem in some ways depersonalizes it and makes it less a source of shame. These are individuals who are part of the system, but it's a system that we have to change. And I feel like you were contrasting there a question of what we should work towards and then a question of how we do it. And I think that if billionaires want to, to change the system, they should be brought on board. And there are lots of wealthy people in New Zealand who recently spoke out about wanting to pay more tax. I think 96 people wrote uh, and signed a letter on that. Um, there, are, there are others like Warren Buffett who've been calling for a change to the economic system with, with plenty of personal wealth. In fact, I think this is the last thing I'll say, like, it's pretty key for us all to feel like we have an interest in changing the system rather than um, doing it from a position of, of altruism. Um, and that involves wealthy people too, thinking um, I could lead a better life, a richer, more communal life in a different kind of system. Um, there's actually a really nice line on, in, a, in a context of kind of anti-racism from the US, um, I think by Fred Moten, um, about white people um, supporting um, a move beyond white supremacy and how important that is. And I think Fred Morton said, if you excuse the language, um, uh, you need to understand that this shit is killing you too, however much more softly. And I think that it makes an important point in relation to, to race as well as in relation to um, class and the economic system, that we all have an interest in a better system. So it's not about shame. Um, it's about, yeah, bringing people on board in the right way. So the question is, is how, and if I can just sharpen that a, a little bit. I mentioned Toyota before. Um, the move to EVs is rapid in this country and around the world, it's, uh, and it is really quite remarkable how fast EVs are now being taken up. But there was a moment there where that could have resulted in us having smaller, easier, cars that were less physically dangerous to everybody else walking in, on the roads, um, but it didn't work that way. What has happened is that 
the private vehicle fleet, EVs and fossil fuels, has converted to SUVs. We've got big EVs, not small ones. And there's a consumer thing. That is being driven by consumers just as much as it's being driven by the companies, feeding each other. Yeah. And it really strikes me that there's something we need to... I don't know how we break that relationship, but it needs to evolve in some way. Yeah. You know, the crisis is the opportunity for change, yeah, but when the change goes in that direction, it creates a whole lot of other problems. How do we get better change? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, uh, it, it is interesting. One, one of the things um, we work with at, at Taha is, is, the, is the farming sector, which you, you mentioned in the, in the intro was half our emissions. And you know, and, and they're, they're almost on a cul-de-sac. They're sort of, you know, there's no EV coming to save them, right? They've, they've, they've been driven into this very high emissions, very high input farming system, um, and, you know, which requires them to spend a lot on fertilizer um, and, and to maintain very high stocking rates. And they're kind of trapped, right? They've borrowed money um, to, to buy these farms, to, to get the stock on these farms, and, and literally the banks will not let them back out of it, you know, you, 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 they, they need to carry on in this farming system, yet it's also, you know, damaging our waterways, um, uh, and, and of course if we, you know, causing this terrible debate around um, agricultural emissions pricing. And that banks issue is really critical, isn't it? It's the, it's the banks that have got farming tied to what they're doing now. Yeah. And, and the, well, the banks are also, are also trapped. <laughs> you know, everybody's kind of trapped, to come back to Max's point, in, in, the, in the system. Um, and, and it is almost the, the sense that, that just incremental change um, isn't enough. And in fact, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons agricultural emissions pricing has been so difficult is because it will simply send some farms under. Right, it's not going to sort of shave a little bit off every farm. It's actually going to make some farms unprofitable. And you know, there are there are arguments that we should be retreating from farms, but that leads to the you know collapse of communities. So some of our rural communities, you know, suddenly there's a there's another family that's missing from the school. The school closes. You know, suddenly you you're having to travel to the school further away. So there's a real, you know, we're, we're at this we're at this point where where small changes, you, you know, can create big impacts on, on, on people. And so, yeah, systemic change, I think, is, it's really important to, to look at that and, and to not just keep incrementalizing. Jane? Yeah, I'd love to respond to the point around the EVs because I think it's actually like an urban planning and urban design issue. Mm -hmm. um, so I think part of the problem is the way that our cities have been developed. And I think there's been some really positive and reasonably radical planning reforms, but they always get watered down through the economic process, or, or so sorry, not through the economic process, through the democratic process, um, and what I'd often deem as people protecting their own class interests. Um, but ideally what we're moving towards is neighborhoods where all of your needs and the majority of your movements occur within that neighborhood and can be met within that neighborhood, connected by high quality, um, rapid mass transit, and if you can achieve that within a city in between cities, then we can make that the more, more um, rational option where actually taking a car is going to be more expensive, more difficult, more problematic, and you're much better off just to catch the train or the bus or the tram or whatever it is. And I know we're a long way from that because we haven't developed our cities in that way, 
but I think that's the way to go. And then that really minimizes the need for these more efficient electronic vehicles, EVs, hybrids. They can still exist, but they've got a much smaller role to play within that interconnected system. So Sam Stubbs from the Simplicity Foundation in Auckland says we need to stop thinking about quarter-acre paradises and think about quarter-hour paradises, and that's the idea of the 15-minute city. What a wonderful tagline. That's really it's catchy, it? and yeah, it's, 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 it's very accurate. Yeah. That's what yeah, we should yeah, be doing. Yeah. So, and that requires people wanting to do it, um, councils and governments leading the way because the, the, the planning framework has to be there for it to happen um, and the use of the roads and so on has to be there for it to happen um, and a whole lot of other things too. Is it realistic? Is it realistic in a city like Auckland to think we could develop 15-minute communities? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I definitely the, think the so. The idea of a 15-minute community, most of what you need, you can get to within 15 minutes. I think so, and I think like one thing to think about when we're talking about good change and what's realistic is not uh, narrowing our horizons too much, actually, and I think we can hope and aim for more, more than that, than 15-minute cities, which are, are mainstream in, I think, um, several other places, at least around the world. Just to pick up on Jade's point about the planning system, and to tie it to that point, um, I think Paris Marx in this um, great recent book in Paris recently came to New Zealand and spoke to Simon and talked about how um, lots of cities and countries internationally weren't always car dependent and actually had infrastructure that was set up yeah, for public transport often until around the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, and their point is that um, these planning decisions in the 1920s and 30s um, have had yeah, long, lingering effects, and that shows how important planning and infrastructure are. But it also, I think, points to how important it is to talk about the state, which is not always very sexy. Um, but I think we can't talk about systemic change without talking about the role of the state in building infrastructure, public infrastructure, and in, in taxing and redressing past wrongs that that same state has enacted. Um, and yeah, I think that's a key part of the conversation. And we're going to need to have these conversations in the local communities and in the bigger communities because we can either have the conversation facilitated by government ahead of time or we'll continue to be in disaster response, disaster response, disaster response mode. We've got to have some of the conversations collectively, de-individualize it. You know, when we talk about cars or we talk about are you taking public transit, those are individual decisions that matter. But what do we want to do in our suburbs, what do we want to do in our connected suburbs, and ha give people a chance to have a conversation about what do we actually want this to look like, because what it's going to take to get people to buy in in one suburb is going to look quite different than in another, or what it's going to take to get people to buy in in Tamaki Makoro is going to look different than what it looks like down in Wellington, right? So that we have these conversations now, we think about what differences we want to embed now, and then proactively do that so we're not always in crisis management mode. We are going to have time for questions, so um, I think there are microphone stands. Are there microphone stands? Okay, so if, if you can see a microphone stand, you'd like to ask a question, go on standbys and, and um, we'll get to that quite shortly. Um, just in relation to that, I mentioned um, at the start the, uh, the mayor's announcement yesterday that the, there is a 19-point plan for uh, responding to the flooding in Auckland, and it involves a, a whole lot of things like daylighting streams and creating flood retention um, areas and parks and, and all those sorts of things, much better culverts. Um, 
it is really possible to use a crisis to do something to, to, to respond well. That's if that plan works, that is the proof of it in the city, and who'd have thought, you know? It's, um, so I take a lot of heart from, from, from that. Um, but I do go back to this question of we have to move faster. Um, so if there's an ecosystem of how you get change, and at one end there is the politician who signs off the change, and, and then it all, all the way goes back through the submissions and the protests and the arguing and all the rest of it. And at the other end, there is what's called a radical flank, mm -hmm. uh, a flank of people who are in Wellington currently gluing their hands to the roads and enraging everybody. Goodness. Um, is the radical flank valuable? Is, is it sometimes valuable and sometimes not? Um, and why does the climate movement not have a bigger radical flank in this country? <laughs> You've done the book on it. <laughs> I think that there's a strong sense of wanting to build consensus and community, and a radical flank kind of pushes against that. And many people are thinking, how can we bring people on board and worried that they're just going to alienate alienate people who are not yet on board from ever getting on board if they start with the radical flank. So how do we have the conversations? How do we present the positive story that will get people to buy in? But it's interesting, if you, do, you think about Emily Pankhurst and the suffragists mm -hmm. in, in um, Europe, in London, the things they did, chaining themselves to, to railings and throwing themselves in front of horses in the race, they were so outrageous. <laughs> and it worked over time. And part of why it works is it helps to move what looks moderate, right? Yes. So if you, you have everybody working on a spectrum, the, the, the radical flank helps us have those moderate and more conservative conversations that helps to move them so that we can move a bit faster. And what seemed maybe radical to some now, now looks like centrist. And so that's also how we can... We do need, I would say, a radical flank. Does it have to be huge? No. Well, the, one of the classic examples of it is... Martin Luther King being able to say to Kennedy and then Johnson, if you're not going to listen to me, you're going to have to listen to Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. um, and the politics of that are really fascinating. Mm -hmm. But in New Zealand, in fact, in the climate movement generally, there are not many Malcolm Xs. Uh, or do you think that's wrong? Yeah, I don't, I don't agree. I think, um, I think a lot of those people might not be getting the attention they deserve, but I think, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think there's been a lot of young people who've done really active, brave things, School Strike for Climate, Te Arafatu, indigenous-led climate movement that went to COP, mm -hmm. who hasn't, which hasn't maybe gotten a lot of mainstream attention. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think it's a difficult question to answer. I think it's a really good question. Don't take issue with the question, because what's radical is always relative, cha change over time. I think even in the last seven or eight years, I think what's possible in terms of systemic change has shifted. And I think it's better talking about really specific issues because, yeah, um, some people would, would call like the parliament protests a radical flank on a particular issue. And I think we're better off, yeah, talking about, you know, climate specifically or rail specifically. But I think the key, one key thing is um, coordination within groups and connections between uh, activists and litigators and media, um, and I think, I don't know what 
you'd say that I think, in my experience, more effective change is, is coordinated. And that requires relationships, and it also requires us not to be too atomized or disconnected as a society. Okay. I can't see if there's anybody asking, wanting to ask a question, but if there is, start talking. <laughs> sure. I just wondered if you think any of this is possible if... Is that loud enough? Yes, oh. it's good. Okay. Um, do you think any of this is possible if high-income nations continue to um, value um, economic growth? Good question. <laughs> Pretty much what I was going to ask. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, i start talking, I guess, because I've got views and everything. But um, I think that it's really a tricky one to talk about because all of our mainstream economic models are, are, are really predicated on, on further growth. And it's seen as a negative thing if you're trying to kind of consolidate or, or stabilize. Um, and I even think about that in relation to business. I mean, I run a business and the talk is always about growth and not necessarily about um, finding an equilibrium and sustaining that. And so I, I think there's a lot of different shifts that are required, and it, it is policy change, but it's also kind of changing hearts and minds stuff. I do think decommodifying, like some of the things Max was talking about in terms of decommodifying basic services, and I would add decommodifying housing mm -hmm. as kind of essential infrastructure, I think would change some of those, um, you know, drivers around economic growth as, as, a, as a given. Um, but I'm sure others have got lots of thoughts, so I'll stop talking. I, yeah, I mean, and, and I think... I mean, it's about ext it's extractive growth that's mm -hmm. doing us in, right? And and you know, you talked about that, Max, at the start. That 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 where we're where we're producing growth, where we're where we're where we're um, building wealth extractively, that that's never going to be sustainable. Um, you know, we're we're on a finite planet. It doesn't matter if we solve the climate problem if we carry on extracting um, from the planet. You know, growth will eventually kill us. And so it's it's it's. You can grow, right? We, we, we are, as a society, becoming more knowledgeable. Um, we understand the world better. Um, there are more new ideas every day. So it's possible to, to grow in that way, um, uh, to grow in terms of knowledge, better ways of doing things. Um, but it's, it's, it's where it comes down to extracting natural resources, I think, so, that, that yeah. the end has got to come. Or when so growth is Kate, just consumption. Sorry. I was going to say, Kate, Kate Raworth is one of the leading economists in this area, and she developed the donut economics. And, her argument is that there are, I think it's nine planetary limits um, in terms of resources and so on, and we're busting them. And yet when she's asked directly, do you think we can limit our use of resources to within the planetary limits and still have a, an acceptable standard of living, she's not sure how to answer. Yeah. I know I already talked, but I would want to add something because so much of that is around wealth inequality and wealthier people just use so many more resources. Right. And so then as sort of so-called developing nations seek to attain that kind of standard of living, then everyone ends up using more resources. But for those of us, especially in wealthy Western countries who might be hoarding uh, a majority of resources, we're not willing to change the way that we're living or people are not willing to change the way they're living to use less. So I don't think it's upon developing nations to not want to you know, increase that standard of living. And I mean, there's other environmental issues around how that development occurs. But I think the real issue is that our wealthy nations and wealthier people within those nations aren't willing to change their standard of living so that they use, and right. use less resources. 
Max, sorry. Just quickly, I, yeah, um, thanks for the question. I think growth is part of the problem, but I think it's part of a system that prioritizes profit and extraction and exploitation. And I think there is a, even though I think there's lots of great work that's been done on degrowth, um, including by people like Jason Hickel, I think there's a risk um, if we only focus on growth, that we take too narrow an approach, and also an approach that yeah, might um, not be differentiated enough in, in terms of thinking about yeah, people that don't have resources at the moment. But I think that was um, taken into account in the question, which was focused on high-income countries. Um, but I do think it's really important we, we try to diagnose the problem in the right way. I think one other area where this comes up, um, I think this comes out of Carissa's book as well, is um, people that say the problem is um, boomers, or <laughs> the problem is a generation. And in, in my view, it's, it's not um, a generational problem, it's a system problem that um, older people and, and other generations can support change on. And I think diagnosing that right is important so that we yeah, don't follow um, solutions down a dead end. Thank you, Max. Yeah. <laughs> We've got four seconds. One last very quick question. Uh, okay, sorry for this. Um, Max, you raised a, an important point there around 100 companies make 71% of our emissions. So there's a limit to how much personal material change we can make ourselves. We really need to confront the industries that are causing the, the most harm here. And our economic system basically allows industries to control the access to resources, often the resources that we need to make the change. Um, Sean, you raised a good point there in regards the dairy industry in New Zealand, or, or agricultural industry in New Zealand. Um, they lock up a massive amount of land, land which could be used for other means as a resource to actually solve some of these problems. How do we confront this economic system and, and name it capitalism? Uh, how, do, how do we confront it and, and our inability to access those resources because they're tied up in personal um, ownership? We might have to just say, in all the ways. <laughs> have you got to really quickly, like, I think this idea of decommodification, even though it might sound like a big word, it is quite a helpful idea that, like, gradually over time we take things out of being commodities and take things out of the market. That's the way we, we can gradually shift the system. Um, without necessarily ripping down everything immediately. Um, and I think we need to talk about things like public ownership um, in a utility-consistent way, in a way that works in this society. Um, and I think there are these steps that we can take, and it's not too hard. And protest and 41,000 submissions and people working inside the system and outside to make those in power accepted and change. Thank you all, everybody, for being here this evening.